0: This is the InFocus podcast from The Hindu. Hello and welcome to the InFocus podcast from The Hindu. I'm Ramya Kannan, your host for today. The emergency committee met for the 15th time and recommended to me that I declare an end to the public health emergency of international concern. I have accepted that advice. It's therefore with great hope that I declare COVID-19 over as a global health emergency. The recent announcement from the World Health Organization that COVID-19 would no longer be considered a public health emergency of international concern, sort of threw a spanner in the works. Was this a message of hope? Is it true that COVID is really over? What about vaccination or masking? The questions were a plenty. Today, we have with us Dr. saumya Swaminathan, former Chief Scientist of the WHO and present Chairperson of the MS Swaminathan Research Foundation in Chennai to bring in some clarity to the issue. Good afternoon, Dr. saumya Swaminathan. It's uh, good to have you back in India. And uh, also, we're hoping that... Uh, the recent declaration by the WHO that COVID pandemic is at an end, is it truly you know, a hopeful situation or is there, are there layers to this? Yeah, that's a very good question
1: because I think we have not reached the end of the pandemic. What is over is the acute phase of the pandemic, which had been characterized as a public health emergency of international concern PHEIC by the WHO. That is what has been now lifted. So it's no longer considered a public health emergency, but the WHO DG did warn that it's still a global threat. And there are a couple of reasons for that. The first one is that the evolution of COVID is still unpredictable. We could have at any time a variant that's not only more transmissible, that's what we expect the new variant to be, but could also cause an increase in clinical severity of disease. So the only way to be prepared for something like that is to continue the monitoring, the surveillance, especially the genomic surveillance, and correlate that with the clinical and epidemiological findings. If at any time any country reports that they have uh, seen a variant or even a recombinant, that has properties of increased clinical severity, then the WHO might go back again to this public health emergency situation. So I think for the next couple of years, I would say, till this virus actually settles into a pattern which it has not yet done, we cannot be sure of its next uh, form. Of course, COVID-19 is here to stay, we all know that, but we could still be faced with some surprises. And we need to monitor and adapt our responses as the situation demands. Right. I'll just add to that. As I said, it's a virus evolution, but it's also other factors, which is mainly the waning of immunity. So whatever immunity we now have today because of vaccines and or natural infection is expected to wane over a period of time. For something like influenza, we are now used to an annual vaccine, particularly for high-risk groups, and every year the vaccine composition changes. We don't yet know if COVID is going to require sars cov are we going to need um, an adapted vaccine every year, particularly for the high-risk groups, to protect us from severe disease? Or the immunity we have today, is it going to last us? That question can only be answered you know, over a period of time. And The third variable, of course, is human behavior. And during the first two years of the pandemic, people were very guarded. People wore masks, they avoided unnecessary gatherings, etc. Clearly, all that is no longer happening. People are gathering in large numbers. You know, there are conferences, there's international travel. And therefore, the risk of new variants spreading to G uh, is also very high. So these are the reasons why we need to continue to be quite cautious and resilient.
0: Right. Um, That actually throws up a couple of interesting points that we might, uh, you know, sort of spend some time on. One is uh, you mentioned the vaccines and uh, you mentioned influenza, which uh, uh, has multiple iterations of the vaccine depending upon the strain, the current strain. Um, is it going to be the future for COVID vaccination as well? Is there going to be uh, an iteration every year or every couple of years? And um, do governments now have to uh, you know, put in place a policy for adult vaccination? Adult and child, but uh, basically a policy.
1: So as of now, I think the policy is for people to get their primary course of vaccination, which is two doses plus a third dose or a booster dose which in many countries um, has been at a very low rate of uptake, including in India, where I think it's under 20%, the third dose. And in that, even in the high-risk groups, I think it's 30-35%. So the third dose is, is what is expected to give us long-lasting immunity and protection. Now, the studies that were done with uh, using the Omicron variant, the BA five, BA.5, BA.5 that a couple of companies incorporated into their vaccine showed that you get better immune response, uh, especially the bivalent vaccines, which had the original virus strain and the BA5 strain, uh, gave you a much broader immune response and that would have been expected to, uh, to cover a, a broader range of variants. Now, we have been with the Omicron, of course, hundreds of sub variants, but all within the Omicron family. And therefore, I think, the original vaccines still have a high degree of protection against severe disease. But what we can clearly see now is that they don't protect us against infection. And that many people are getting infected, reinfected, etc. with every new uh, strain, which is a little more transmissible than the previous one. There's, a, again, a, a surge or a wave of, of reinfections. So
0: what this is telling us is
1: that we still don't have... Uh, The perfect vaccine which prevents infection and disease so we still need a search for that and your question of whether we're going to need to adapt it every year is still an open question and this is why the who has a committee called the tag covac which is the technical advisory group on uh, covid vaccine composition that is constantly monitoring not only the evolution of the virus but also the studies which are looking at the effectiveness of the vaccine across different populations, different age groups, different uh, demographics, that will inform us actually, whether we will need new and adaptive vaccines. Again, we come back to the need for research for long-term cohort studies and follow-up studies in our own population, which will inform the government policy on whether we need repeat doses, what type of vaccine. In India now, we have a couple of vaccines that have been made using Omicron. I think one of them is the Genova mRNA vaccine and I think the Bharat Biotech nasal vaccine also uses uh, Omicron and it could easily be uh, introduced by other companies if there is a clear need. So I think uh, the bivalent vaccines, while they did show broader immune response, their clinical efficacy was not that much superior to regular vaccines and this is why WHO did not tell countries okay switch to the new vaccines because the original vaccines are still providing pretty good protection against uh, against against the disease.
0: Is there hope uh, I mean this is just a corollary for the vaccine question is there hope from the nasal vaccine of actually preventing infections? That is the hope
1: but we need the proof we need the data and I think it's a good time to collect that kind of data in India. Um, we saw a surge in the last few weeks and so if we had had a number of people who had been vaccinated with the nasal vaccine versus those who had not, we could have seen if there had been any difference between infection rates. That's the kind of study we'll have to do now because almost everybody has antibodies so you can't do a, a typical classical vaccine efficacy study anymore but it's relatively going to be easier to look at protection from infection because that is still happening. Uh, it's very common. So it's not going to be difficult to have the sample size to test that. Um, but I'm not aware of such data as being collected.
0: Um, you mentioned uh, vaccine equity, Dr. Uh, Samia. And uh, isn't that like uh, while it was, uh, say, a, a few months into the pandemic or a few months after the vaccines were rolled out uh, and a burning issue, Uh, But has it sort of, you know, uh, seen a decline in global interest, Uh, even amongst countries that were once pushing for access? uh, Perhaps there is a sort of let up because of, uh, you know, lower number of cases, maybe?
1: Yes, so I think a couple of things happened. One is that um, after two years of the pandemic, as people got into 2022, And particularly after Omicron, which turned out to be luckily a a variant with uh, less clinical severity, people thought that they could now live with COVID, that it's not going to be as bad and as severe as what we had seen in the first two years. And there was fatigue also, I think. Uh, People who had been suffering a lot in those two years basically wanted to get back to normal life and particularly to economic activity, of course, uh, through the course of twenty twenty two, the the uh, availability and access to vaccines also went up dramatically. Because if you remember, it was the first half of twenty twenty one that there was this acute, you know, shortage because there were limited supplies, people were desperate. Uh, there was we had seen people, you know, dying around the world, particularly frontline workers and many countries didn't, didn't even vaccinate their highest risk groups. They saw other countries vaccinating even their young populations. So at that time, I think the difference was very stark and it was very hard to, uh, to watch that inequity. Later on, as vaccines became more available, I think different kinds of challenges presented themselves, including and system challenges in some of the lowest income countries, even though vaccine was made available, they were not able to roll it out at the scale, at the speed at which it was necessary. So today, while um, of, I think over 70% of the world has received one dose, 66% of the world has received doses, primary vaccination. Only about uh, 30% uh, have received in the low-income countries, uh, full course So there's still a very big gap. And even if you look at people over age, uh, 60, and people who are uh, health workers, even there, there's a very big gap in the percentage that have been vaccinated. So the inequity persists. The reason in the beginning, which was the poor distribution, unfair distribution of vaccines is no longer the case. Supplies are no longer limiting. There are other factors which are limiting. The poorest countries of course have also suffered the most in terms of economic damage. And uh, they already have fragile and systems. They, many of them are conflict countries. And so all of these reasons is why there's still that gap you know, in vaccination uh, coverage. There continues to be inequity in access to drugs. I think we should mention that Paxlovid, made by Pfizer, which is a very effective treatment. And if given early in the course of infection, it can actually reduce the clinical severities in terms of everything probably reduces post-COVID also, so now covid is not available uh, in the majority of low and middle income countries. I think in India now one company is manufacturing it, so it is uh, still restricted, but available. But many countries have not seen it, so I think when we talk about inequity, it's not just vaccines, but a host of other uh, health products.
0: Right. Um. So the other issue is that you know, um, you had tweeted about uh, not dismantling systems that have been set up for, uh, COVID, uh, you know, to handle COVID uh, cases. So, um, I mean, is it okay for these to be repurposed into other health uses? Because you know, a lot of countries are strapped for funding and cash, and so would it be okay to use it for other health, you know, requirements? or is it important to maintain the covid uh, structures infrastructure as and when uh, as they have for the purpose for which they were built
1: reasons why the who has made this or the emergency committee made this recommendation and the dg accepted it for the ending of fake is that they believe that we should no longer be in emergency mode but we should countries have to move into a uh, modality of dealing with covid along with the other health challenges along with other infectious diseases that we deal with and so I think it's a very good opportunity to not dismantle what was built completely but to really see how it can be integrated and how it can be um, used in fact to add value to maybe some of the other um, health challenges that we face of course including um, being prepared surveillance for uh, any emerging or re-emerging infections. So one good example is the genomic surveillance network that India set up, that many other countries set up, where today we have a network of laboratories who are uh, very experienced in doing this in a real-time manner. And we have a network of scientists who will be working together, analyzing the data, providing reports. If this can now be integrated into, let's say, a respiratory disease surveillance, Influenza is already being done, but it was being done through the network of influenza labs. We can decide every country can decide which are the viruses that we want to, um, to regularly uh, be monitored. Uh, polio is definitely something that we do. So to become an integrated disease, virus, viral disease surveillance network, uh, respiratory diseases would need one approach where you might want to monitor, like we do our ILI and surveillance uh, for people with uh, acute respiratory illnesses. Um, but you could also have gastrointestinal um, diseases or neurological. There are still outbreaks of diseases where we don't know the cause. So I think the capacity we've built this network now, along with um, the expansion of uh, viral labs, virology labs that the government is investing in, I think there are regional labs set up in addition to NIV in Pune. There's already the network of the VRDLs, of the ICMR. These need to be put to good use, efficient, uh, of course, cost-effective, and the type of surveillance also. uh, One is surveillance of people who are ill and hospitalized. Another one could be community-based surveillance or what's called participatory surveillance. You have wastewater sewage, Surveillance. Uh, You could have uh, similarly other kinds of surveillance, which would pick up uh, at ports, airports, airports and so on. I think it doesn't make sense to be looking for COVID at this point. But certainly, points of entry, we need uh, to have a plan. So I think surveillance, what is called collaborative surveillance, how to use that data and, and also how to make information from that data available. For example, the ICMR recently or a few weeks ago said H3N2 was the major strain of uh, virus that we were finding. Because, you know, there were lots of respiratory infections. People were speculating what it was. These labs actually have the data. So if they can put out regular reports to the public on which virus is circulating, who is it likely to infect, what are the clinical features, and what's the treatment. We can also avoid the use of unnecessary antibiotics. and um, and And... Put out the right kinds of preventive um, methods also that we want people to use. Even for a influenza outbreak, we might want to ask people to use masks. You know, for that period of time, we know it's effective against all respiratory viruses. So that's that's one aspect. The other aspect is the uh, communication, as I mentioned, the risk communication, uh, managing infodemics. There are we know that the infodemic is here to stay. That social media will be used. For mis and disinformation. So, the health departments have to be constantly monitoring that and not just being responsive, but being proactive in terms of communicating health risks. And again, this is not just for outbreaks and viruses, but in general for health. Nutrition is a good example of where we need much more public information and, and massive nutrition literacy campaigns that can inform and educate people about what a healthy diet is. The third is uh, the clinical care pathway. And again, starting from the primary health care level, and in fact, even further down now, we have our health and wellness centers. What does a community health officer do if they see somebody with warning signs? Let us say somebody who's looking this snake, somebody who has taken uh, high respiratory rate or pulse oxygen looks low. Um, What do they do? Where do they refer? Who's going to admit? Is oxygen available? You know, we need oxygen available down now to the lowest levels of healthcare. We know that it's a lifesaver, not just for COVID, for many diseases. Oxygen can save lives. And I think that realization around the world really led to uh, a lot of focus on how to make oxygen available. At different levels of the health system, you need different oxygen modalities. And in a big hospital, you might have a plant, etc. But in a small place, you might just want cylinders or concentrators. So that's important. Um, protocols for managing common uh, diseases. And in fact, now post-COVID, and I'm, I was very happy to see that the health ministry actually has a good document on how to manage people with post-COVID symptoms, cardiovascular, neurological, nephrological, etc. gastrointestinal, and so. for a whole host of post-COVID complications. So they have that. Um, now nicely uh, actually laid out. So that's the kind of thing we need. We need guidance for both private and public sector. Private doctors particularly need to follow also protocols. Um, avoid use of antibiotics where not necessary. Avoid use of drugs that are not effective. Avoid the use of steroids where not necessary. Remember? So I think that whole clinical care pathway, good clinical management, uh, That that is one whole area where Uh, COVID has taught us a lot and we can improve the management of many of the other common diseases that we see in day-to-day practice. I would like to stress here the importance of diagnosing and managing and preventing non-COVID diseases because all these post-COVID complications we're talking about, people who have underlying risk factors are at much higher risk. Both for acute, we saw people with underlying hypertension, diabetes, obesity, or the ones who got sick. But we also know that these people are already at high risk for heart attacks, for strokes, etc. And COVID might have made, made it worse. So we need an even bigger focus now on LCDs. Um, and specifically in post-COVID complication clinics where people can go. And again, this has to be down at, I saw a very nice one in the primary Health center in Kerala and Bainabh district. Similarly, we need every PHC to have this uh, facility where people can go get themselves tested and are put on, you know, there's no specific treatment but obviously you can do a lot of uh, symptomatic treatment and physiotherapy, rehabilitation, whatever's needed or specialist care, etc. So, there's a lot to be done in that that, uh, sphere. And then, uh, of course, there's we need to think about R&D. We talked a lot about access to Diagnostics, vaccine, therapeutics, India is in a relatively much better position. In fact, it's one of the priorities in the G20 now to uh, have this topic discussed and how do we really make sure that all countries have access to countermeasures. But we have to be prepared, uh, as I said, for not just a new variant of COVID, but something new, a new virus tomorrow, avian flu, anything can come along. We need to check are our systems ready? Can we how long will it take us to produce a diagnostic kit? How long will it take us to produce a vaccine? So we need to keep our vaccine platforms and everything ready. With um, the new technologies, of course, you just take the gene sequence and we should be able to create a vaccine very quickly. Then you have to run it through clinical trials. Uh, we, there is a 100-day goal globally. The G7 have come up with this 100-day goal that in the next pandemic, we should have a vaccine in 100 days. Um, so the goal is to do better than we did this time. And on antivirals, there is a need for more R&D. There is very little investment in the development of new antivirals. And so these are all things where India needs a national roadmap, a blueprint, an R&D blueprint for diagnostics, therapeutics vaccines for the major pathogens which affect our population. And of course, being prepared for the unknown pathogen. But I think if you strengthen the response to existing, you know, dengue, chikungunya, tuberculosis, we have any number of infections for which we don't have a good vaccine. So we could start working on those. And that will help building the platform for the the unknown when it arrives.
0: Right. Um, It's interesting. You said uh, you spoke about long COVID. There's a great deal of research on it now. But what about AEFI? There's still a great uh, you know, a, a sort of raucous lobby, anti-vax lobby, and hmm. the uh, probably we don't have as effective documentation of AEFI as we do of say long COVID or any other symptoms. Um is is it necessary now to uh, you know put in place a system to monitor AEFI or or are we past that? We are past
1: that, I think, because in the sense that uh, we're no longer doing uh, you know, active vaccination. I believe there is a system of AEFI. It's not that we don't have a system. I think what we don't have is access to the data. So, you know, the public hears only about one case or two cases when something bad happens. And then it's a very dramatic event. And obviously, it is very bad for the person to know when it happens. But when you put it in the context of the number of vaccines that have been administered and then look at the incidence of these severe side, I'm not talking about minor side effects. Everybody has pain, fever, swelling, that goes off in a day or two. I'm talking about the serious side effects, like clotting that we know occurred with AstraZeneca vaccine or myocarditis with mRNA vaccines. Those, when they occur, are, are. severe can be serious, there may be some uh, mortality related to that, but it was quite rare, many of them recovered. Um, So then when we look at the incidence, then we see it's five to six per million, something like that in that range. Then the risk-benefit, benefit-risk ratio actually is clearly on the side of benefit, you're saving so many lives through vaccination, but you have these very rare side effects, which uh, you expect, right, any health product, whether it's a vaccine or a drug, uh, even if it's 99.99% safe, you still have that one in a million case, one in uh, 100,000. So I think that's what we need to explain to people. Um, and perhaps it's difficult for somebody to understand because when you read about a case, you definitely feel bad about it. But if you if it was explained that this case occurred because, uh, out of so many vaccines that were administered and that there is treatment, if it is recognized that this, this complication has occurred, then this can be done. This is the treatment. I remember at that time, those protocols for treatment of uh, the thrombovascular uh, thing was all, you know, uh, it was uh, prominently uh, disseminated Um And the fact that uh, vaccines in general have a very high safety profile because they're given to healthy people. So in fact, at the WHO also, one of the things that we were really concerned about is when we're doing this accelerated timeline for vaccines and giving emergency use authorization, um, how confident are we about the safety? And therefore, um, the safety data is looked at, scrutinized, and then particularly post-rollout, there was constant... uh, updating of the safety information. The issue of course is that the safety data comes mostly from high income countries. And as you said, AEFI recording is not good enough in many countries, LMIC countries. So that's what we need to improve. I'm sure India also there's room for improvement, Um, but we do have a system which works. And I think again, now with the app, COVID app, it should be much more efficient to collect such information. Uh, And then that information needs to be analyzed and then presented to the public, I think, in a manner where it's transparent, but also people understand that yes, there is a system, it's working, these things are being monitored, and government will take action if there is uh, anything untoward that that happens at any point.
0: Right. Um, If you were to give a short message to uh, the people, Who you know? Who have this information that the WHO has called off uh, uh, COVID nineteen as a pandemic? Then what would you say? I think we have to not say
1: the pandemic is over. So, as I said in the beginning, in the, the acute phase, which was the emergency phase, of the pandemic is over because today we have the knowledge and the tools to deal with COVID, like we deal with many other infections. And so people need to use that knowledge to the best of their ability to protect themselves and their families. So for an individual, I think it means doing your own risk assessment. Do you have factors that make you more susceptible to get severe disease? Have you been vaccinated? Have you had your booster dose, the third dose? Um, and if you are somebody who's who's more vulnerable or you have a very elderly person at home you want to protect, then you would continue to wear a mask when you go into a crowded setting where you're in a closed space, for example. Even recently, we know that you know, there was this CDC conference in the US where a lot of people... So these are situations where the risk of infection is high. And so I think people need to know that it's still good to wear a mask. The other situation where you must wear a mask is if you are sick. So if you yourself have a cough and cold, it doesn't matter if it's COVID or not COVID, it makes public health sense to wear a mask if when you're going out of home so that you're protecting others in the bus. Or, you know, very often you see people coughing uh, in buses or planes or trains where without anything over their mouth and so I think that cough hygiene, that respiratory hygiene, we all learned that. Hand hygiene is extremely important. These are things which will protect us from other respiratory infections apart from COVID. So they're just good practice for us. Um, so I think vaccination, you know, wearing masks, avoiding places if you think that you're you're a vulnerable person, and uh, respiratory hygiene, hand hygiene, you know this. Whole business of spitting, I hope, went down and can stay down. And then keeping yourself informed, not believing in false rumors, using credible sources of information. I do. I think this is a big challenge because lots of people get their information from a WhatsApp forward, which is not verified information. So I think people need to understand that. Not everything that comes on social media is verified or credible information. So I think these are the things which people really need to keep in mind. And listen, uh, constantly listen to what, again, the credible sources of information are saying, WHO updates, health ministry updates and so on as to like if there's suddenly something that changes then we need to know what has to be done individually.
0: Right. Um, Thank you so much, Dr. Samir. You have all the right words all the time. And uh, it's, it's a pleasure to listen to you.